Last Sunday, as you may have seen on the news, a man named Daryl Brooks intentionally plowed into a group of people watching a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Washington, or Wisconsin, rather. Six people died, and dozens were injured. What was supposed to be a, a holiday tradition of people gathering together to celebrate something good and the common good was disrupted by evil and then tragedy and bloodshed at the hands of this man. What caused this? Why would anyone do something like this? And, and our culture tries to process this in a way that, frankly, they are ill-equipped to do. In a godless worldview, evil doesn't make sense. And it comes up empty every single time. This is painfully obvious in the media's attempt to explain it. The Washington Post, in a tweet which appeared on Twitter a few days after it, was looking for responsibility in the SUV that caused the accident. Justifiably so, they were flamed and roasted on Twitter. It was not the SUV that caused the accident. It was the single-handed actions of a man who was doing evil. They decided to delete the mindless tweet a few days later as it was painfully obvious it wasn't the car's fault. It was the thought of the man doing evil. Once again, our godless culture tries to process this evil and comes up empty every single time. Dr. Albert Moeller said this, uh, commenting on this in his podcast this week. The secular worldview simply does not have the equipment to answer the question of the absurdity of sin. It's not wrong to want to know more or to want to know why, but there will never be, in secular terms, an adequate and satisfactory answer to that question. And when we try to pin the blame on a car instead of a human being or evil and sin in general, it's instantly revealed that a secular worldview does not have adequate and satisfactory explanations for why there is evil in our world. The biblical worldview, and only the biblical worldview, church, does and we can explain evil. Evil is a result of sin being in the world. That's why we have those tragic things that happen. That's why men are, are twisted in their minds in order to do things like that because it's a result of sin. It's a result of rebellion against our king and a, and a twisted thought process and mindset. And because of sin, we walk through separation from God and the consequences of sin every day. But that has not left us, church, without hope. And as we round the corner here today into Advent and into Christmas, we must, church, fix our hope on the one, the center of our celebration, the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ, the one thing that we most desperately need. And so hitting the brakes on Matthew for a few weeks, we are going to focus on Advent for these next few weeks in, in the book of Isaiah. If you are new to this church thing, Advent is traditionally celebrated the four weeks leading up to Christmas, not after Christmas. Christmas uh, this year is on a Saturday, so December 26th is on a Sunday. Heads up, Christmas 2022 is on Sunday, so that will be pretty cool as we look forward to that as well. Advent in Latin is Adventus, which means coming and anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. It's difficult to determine exactly when Advent started, probably around the same time when the church agreed upon December 25th 
as Christmas. We don't think Jesus was born in December. It probably was the spring, but the church needed a date. And so around the fourth century, they decided to settle on December 25th. And quite refreshingly, there's not a whole lot of controversy about Advent. It's just the, the, the weeks leading up to the coming of the Messiah, the celebration, the anticipation of the Savior coming, the birth of Jesus. And so over these next four weeks, I'm going to select passages from Isaiah for us to look at, specifically about the prophecies of the Savior, organized in parallel with redemptive history. So we're going to look at a Savior needed, a Savior promised, a Savior delivered up, and a Savior to come again. And this week we start with a Savior needed, and hopefully answering the question, why on earth do we need a Savior in the first place? I mean, if you're with us at midweek, you know that Isaiah, we just finished a four-week series on Isaiah as an overview, as a prophet around the 8th century B.C., so about 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, as we're sticking our toes again into the Old Testament for these next couple weeks, we've got to get our bearings a little bit. We have to remember where we are in the timeline of God's big plan of redemption in the gospel. Israel was God's nation. His people that he created through the patriarch Abraham, he called them out to be different from the rest of the godless nations all around them and how they worshiped and how they dressed and how they ate and all of those things. And he promised them a land and he promised them redemption. But this was never meant to stay with just Israel itself. The redemption was always meant to be global. The redemption was always meant to be for the whole world. From the time of the covenant that God made with Abraham, he promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as many as the, the grains of sand on the seashore. And he would do that through the Messiah that would come through Israel. And sadly, Israel broke the covenant with God. And after repeated warnings of destruction and exile from guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and many others, what they dreaded actually finally came true. Israel was defeated and exiled to Babylon. And we pick up this in Isaiah in the last part of Isaiah, those chapters 40 through 66, are Israel walking through the consequences of their sin. Israel walking through them being in exile. And Isaiah commenting through this. But what God didn't do, church, was give up. God didn't give up on his plan of redemption. Israel's faithlessness was not nullifying then God's faithfulness. Because when we are faithless, he is faithful. And that's grace. And we should thank God for it each and every day. These words in Isaiah 59 are to a nation walking in the depths of the consequences of their failure what's painfully apparent is that we need a Savior. Just look at the first couple verses again for me in Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and they weave the spider's web. And he who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. 
Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The peace or the way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths, and they have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. While reading prophets like Isaiah, we need to remember that most of the prophecies will have a two-parted fulfillment, meaning that there is an actual historical content which Isaiah wrote this in. And there's an actual historical fulfillment for the way that Isaiah speaks these prophecies. But also, Isaiah is speaking really what he did not know in how it will be fulfilled ultimately in the one to come, in the Messiah. So I like to say there's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. And we anchor that in God's sovereignty over salvation. And we see that in the first verse. This might be a disaster for Israel, but it is not a disaster for the Lord. His hand is not too short that it can't save. It's not like he's saying, oh, it's just out of reach. I just can't save you guys. That's not the case. His ear isn't deaf. He is fully aware of all that is going on, and he's fully able to save. In fact, only God is able to save in this situation. And the reason that Israel needs saving, right, the immediate context, again, is what I just hopefully gave an overview of to set the table, is that they're in exile. Their nation has been destroyed. They're in, a, lang- they're in a, a nation with language they don't understand. They are being judged for it. They need salvation. The consequences of sin in Israel in that context were judgment and exile to Babylon. And there's also immediate consequences in their own hearts. Isaiah uses a few words to mean the same thing, iniquities or sins, and then he goes on to describe the consequences. The biggest consequence, church, in verse 2 that their sin has made a separation between them and God. He says, your sins has hidden his face or have hidden his face from you, and so much so that he doesn't even hear you. Isaiah describes what Israel has devolved into in their sins, hands defiled with blood, fingers with iniquity, lips that speak lies, tongues that speak wickedness, unjust lawsuits. They devise evil plans against each other, and like poisonous snake eggs, I know you guys were a little like, what's an adder? I don't understand. What is he talking about, right? The idea that snakes are are bad. We don't like snakes, and some of them are poisonous. And the idea, like the plans that hatch, their evil plans that hatch, and little gross snakes go, you know, crawling everywhere to bite people, so their evil goes into their society. They're unleashed on the world as they hatch. They're full of deeds of sin and violence. They are quick to run into evil. They know only sin. They do not know peace. All of their ways and all of their thoughts are twisted. It's very apparent that Israel is lost in their sin and separated from God spiritually and physically, of course, in exile. But again, Isaiah is saying something so much more deeper here, church. It's not just the immediate context. It's not just Israel, because Israel is a representation of the entire world who is also separated from God because of sin and therefore in need of a Savior. And so why do we need a Savior? Because our sin separates us from God. (coughs) Why do we need our Savior? Because our sin separates us from God. 
And if you're visiting with us, this is, as Brother John just prayed, this is the most basic human need. This is the greatest human need above everything else is that we are separated from our creator because of our sin. And there's not a government in the world that's going to fix that problem. There's not a law in the world that's going to fix that problem. There's not a self-help book on the, on the shelves of Barnes & Noble that will fix that problem. We only succeed like Israel in making it worse. We are separated from God, and we can do nothing to bridge that gap, and we are desperately in need of a Savior. But church, for us too... We must remember that this at one time was us. Even if you're here this morning, which most of you are as professing Christians, we need to remember that every single person, including ourselves, even if you were born in church and your first word was Jesus and you went to nursery right after you were born, you were still sinful and separated from God because of sin, because of the curse of sin. And we've been reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ. But specifically, church, we walk through the reality of sin in this fallen world every day, and, and I don't have to convince anybody that this world is broken and that this world is sinful, broken with the effects and the curse of sin, and specifically in three ways. Sins affect on the natural world, sins in relation to each other, and of course, sin in relation to our own hearts and souls. First, we can see this, it has an effect in the natural world. We see natural disasters, we see tornadoes that rip houses from their foundations, Hurricanes that throw trees around like matchsticks and flood entire cities, earthquakes and tsunamis, the list goes on and on. We also see the effects in the natural world of sickness. We see cancer, we see chronic illness, we see viruses, we see many other terrible diseases. Their presence here is a result of the curse of sin on God's perfect creation. So we see it in the natural world. But we also see it in relation to each other. People do evil to each other. I just read the article, what happened in Wisconsin. Violent crime in New York City is skyrocketing. We're going to continue to see this more and more. We've all sinned, and we've also sinned against others, each other in our relationship. I bet every person in this room has suffered the consequence of someone sinning against you in some way, whether that's physically, whether that's emotionally, whether it's our words, we sin against each other, and we have all walked through the consequences of being sinned against. But third, we see the effects of sin in ourselves. We see our own sinful choices that have negative and sometimes devastating effects on our lives. We feel the conflict in our souls, the tension when we sin that need to be reconciled again with our creator that sin separates Indeed, sin and its effects, church, are everywhere. And it provides very strong evidence that we need a Savior. Even as Christians, we feel the pull in the presence of sin. And in those moments when we give into it, we feel that separation from God. A holy God. And it should remind us of our position. Let's face it, when we blow it, when we have those moments when we actually blow it really big, and we know we have sinned, don't you just feel that separation from your Creator just that little bit more? Let that remind us of our eternal separation without Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to clarify. I want to be careful here. It's important to clarify that at those moments, like if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're positionally not separated from God. You are still a child of God. You are still justified. You are still adopted into his family. But there's a relationship gap, right? 
Let's say, hypothetically, I know this wouldn't happen to anyone in this room, but hypothetically, if you got into an argument with your spouse, see, hypothetically, right, it, it would, it, you would feel that separation, wouldn't you? Your relationship wouldn't be as warm and fuzzy as it once was. Until what? Until you're reconciled. Does it change the fact that you're husband and wife? No. But you need to work that out. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to confess and repent. It's the same thing with us and our God, even as Christians. We need to do that. As you would imagine, sin's consequences go far beyond us, and that's where Isaiah goes next. Look at the next chunk. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope for those who have, or like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears and moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Why? For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, and our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. I repeated a quote a few times recently that says, one of the things that the gospel never does is nothing. Meaning that every time the gospel is preached, it is doing something every single time. It is either softening us to the love of God and to what Jesus has given, for, given to us. It's either softening us to that or it is hardening our hearts. It is driving us farther away. One of the things the gospel never does is nothing. And I think the same thing can be said of sin. One of the things that sin never does, church, is nothing, except it doesn't quite work that two, the two ways that, that the gospel does. Sin only has negative consequences. Every time we sin, the only effect is a negative consequence. It is a further hardening of our hearts. And so while the gospel is at work for both softening and hardening our hearts, sin is always and only at work in hardening our hearts. Sin brings corruption. Sin, sin brings consequences. Sin is never neutral. It always is at work for evil. My good friend Charles Spurgeon said, sin is evermore a bitter thing. And they who follow it while expecting to arrive at the light of joy are duped and deceived. And indeed, this is right out of Isaiah, where, where Isaiah was saying, you guys are like walking around in the dark, except it's noon. You're, you're trying to like grope for the light switch and you can't find it. You don't know the direction you're going. Why? Because sin has deceived you. Sin has put calluses over your eyes. Sin has warped your judgment. Isaiah tells us that justice is gone. We hope for light and we get darkness. We hope for salvation and it's far from us. Sin multiplies its transgressions before a perfect God. We deny him, we turn from him. The result is a people filled with oppression 
and lies and injustice. Look with me at verses 14 through 15. I can tell some of you resonated with this as I got there. 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Are you guys tracking with that? Do we see much truth in the public square in America 2021 right now? Do we see uprightness or righteousness actually making any inroads? Sometimes we get discouraged in that. It seems like it's only sin. It's just 15. Truth is lacking. We live in an upside-down clown world where, where wrong seems right and what is sinful is celebrated and all of that. And Isaiah said, yeah, guess what, America 2021? The same thing was happening in Israel in 700 B.C. Sin always has the same effect. And look at also in 15, he says, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. We've been talking about this time and time again. We started with John the Baptist in his, back in Matthew, in his martyrdom and several other places, right? When we as Christians stand up for truth, right, guess what? We're then marked as prey. We then become a target because we are defecting then from the secular worldview and saying, no, actually God's word doesn't say that. And we stand on this truth. And we become prey. If you're bold enough to depart from evil, you make yourself a target. Isaiah is commenting on a national level the sins of Israel here. But this could have very easily been ripped from today's headlines, could it not? And we see it around the world. Not much has changed since the early church. And in fact, in the first century, Paul talks about this in Romans 3. He quotes Isaiah and a bunch of other passages In Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, it says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, therefore they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. When we start to think about, is, are, are there good people in the world? People can do good things, yes, but we have to stand on the truth of Scripture that the reality is, spiritually speaking, no one is good. It's, it's a flip of the worldview. The humanistic worldview says people are born basically good. The Bible, we just read it, says people are born basically evil. Why? Because of sin. Because we rebelled against our Creator. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, again with the snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And in the way of peace they've not known. Sound familiar? Directly from Isaiah 59. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The problem of sin will ultimately follow humanity wherever it goes. I was talking with someone in town the other day about how nice it is to live up here and be in Sussex and be a little bit more remote, right? But the comment was made that there's still evil here. There's still sin here. There's still murder here. There's still sexual assault here. There's still theft here. There's still all of the things that we would find more at a higher level in a bigger city, but it's still here. Why? Because people are here. Wherever people go, there's going to be sin And we see that as a result and as a consequence. Again, church, this points to our need for a Savior. 
Why do we need a Savior? Because sin has consequences. We need a Savior because sin has consequences. Again, this is like cookies on the bottom shelf here. I don't have to convince any of you that sin has consequences. We all know this. And even if we look at the same three places that I talked about a moment ago, we can see it again. Sin has consequences in the world. It has consequences in others. It has consequences in ourselves. With the world around us, we see it every day. It's obvious. We read the news. And we see it again in verses 14 and 15. The consequences of sin is that our world, again, is upside down. Government policy in the public square, the marriage, gender, and sexuality, what we are teaching our kids in the public schools, the list goes on and on and on. Those are consequences of sin. We see it in the world around us, but we also see it in our relationships with others. Sin is what makes marriage difficult. Sin is what makes parenting difficult. Friendships and family relationships difficult. Nice, we have Thanksgiving, right? And we're reminded of all those relationships that are just a little bit tense, right? Pass the cranberry sauce, Uncle Pete, right? <laughs> sometimes it hurts more to keep our mouths closed. And sometimes we do have to speak truth, and sometimes we need to have discretion in doing that, but we're reminded, and holidays have a wonderful way of reminding us that there's conflict, there's tension. We well up, of course, in our own souls with the consequences of sin. We swim in an ocean of fear, worry, and anxiety. We shipwreck ourselves with the sins of discontentment and jealousy of others and their lives and their achievements. And the biggest consequence of all is what Isaiah said in verse 2, which I'm going to keep driving into the ground. The biggest consequence in ourselves is that we are separated from our Creator. That is the biggest consequence. Ultimately, this, if this separation right, is not resolved, if the separation that we are all born with is not resolved, you will continue in that separation from God, eternally in hell, away from God and His kindness. And sin has created a giant mess. It did it in Israel, and we see it every day here. It hasn't changed because humanity hasn't changed. What's the solution? Isaiah tells us. You probably are all ready for this already. You're like, we sung Christmas songs and everything. It was Advent. You got us all hyped up. And now you're talking about snake eggs and growling like bears and that we're all sinful. Here it is. Get ready. Breathe it in. The Lord saw it and this displeased him that there was no justice. And so he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, and to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. And he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those whom Jacob in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. 
My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put into your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Church, we should, we should have felt that desperation before we got to verse 16. We are lost in sin. We are separated from God. And there was no one to intercede. That's why we need a Savior. There can be one solution to this. There only is one solution. The spiritual reality is that we can't. God looked at the situation and saw there was no one to intercede. And so what did he do? He provided someone to intercede with his own arm. Remember, he said, my arm is not too short that I can't save. And he says in a little while, watch how then I will extend my arm and I will bring salvation with my own arm. One study note in the Reformation Study Bible puts it this way. No one can intercede for the Lord has turned his face away from his people because of their sins. Until that fundamental breach in their relationship is dealt with, there can be no restoration. Yet no human can act as the mediator. Since we are all implicated through our own transgressions, God himself will have to act alone to accomplish salvation, proving that his arm is not too short. You see that dilemma, and do you see the solution that the Lord provides in his grace and in his power? Isaiah tells us that there was no man to intercede, so then God did it. God's the one who interceded. His righteousness uphold him. And then we see someone else, really, in the back half of verse 16, enter the picture here, his righteousness upheld him. Okay, well, his, him, who's him? It seems to be someone else is coming into the picture here. His righteousness upheld him, the one to come, the Messiah. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And what does that mean? What does he do? Church, he goes to war. He goes to war against sin that ruined his perfect creation. He puts on the garments of war and vengeance and zeal, and he goes to war to fight for us, his church, his people. And he says, they will not be separated from me because I will provide a savior myself. And as for those who continue to do injustice and evil, there will be vengeance. And he says he will inflict it on them himself. Garments of vengeance, he says, he puts on, he wraps himself in light or in zeal. He, he goes to make sin pay for what it did. Look at verse 20, of course. This is where it comes to a, a, a climax. It says, a, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turned from transgression. Church, this is the heart of what we celebrate in Advent, the, the, the anticipation of one to come a redeemer. The concept of a redeemer is one that's someone who buys someone else out of slavery. You are trapped. You can do nothing yourself to save yourself or free yourself. You need someone else to come in and pay for your freedom. And that's what the redeemer does. And he does it with his blood on the cross. This is the one who will come from Zion, from Jerusalem, from Israel, those in Jacob. Again, the family line leading towards the Messiah. Jesus came from the family line of Israel. Yahweh says, this is my covenant 
hold on here. Yahweh, Lord, God, Almighty, I am. Your covenant's broken. I, th- I thought you said this is the whole reason that Israel is in exile and that judgment has come upon them. Your covenant's broken. So why are you talking about a covenant? Because again, church, our sin cannot nullify God's faithfulness. There still is a covenant. Even though the old covenant was meant to do what it was meant to do with Israel and pointing to the anticipation of the coming of the Savior, there is a new covenant coming. And really, if you look at it from a biblical worldview, it's, like all, it's all one covenant anyway. It's all coming together. It just has two parts, old covenant and new covenant. It's one promise, the promise to never leave us or forsake us, the promise to rescue and redeem, the promise to not let sin or evil have the last word, the promise for God to do what he said he would do. The covenant is not the law, he says, but it will be the words that he will write, put in our mouths, in the mouths of our offspring forever and ever. And that's why you're sitting in Sussex County in 2021 and hearing the gospel preached still, because those words are still being proclaimed to you, to your offspring and their offspring. The gospel will continue. Church, this is the word made flesh. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Redeemer. This is the one who we were looking forward to come to save and indeed now has come. And so I'll put it this way. We need a Savior and God himself has provided one. We need a Savior and God himself has provided one. The advent, the anticipation of the Messiah's coming, the Savior's coming, what we celebrate looking back on God's faithfulness, right? Isaiah was looking forward to God's faithfulness. And we have the advantage of knowing that his name is Jesus, the Christ, as John said again, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that the scriptures that Isaiah foretold. We know that he has come. We know that he has done the work perfectly. We know that his name is Jesus. And Isaiah 59 cries out that we need a savior and God has provided one. Our sin is separated from us, from God, and has its consequences. We need a Savior, and God himself has provided one. But before we skip ahead again to the bad news, we need to remember, or skip ahead to the good news, we need to remember the bad news. The passage we read was from the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 that I think I I put in your bulletin. And the Apostle Paul spends time focusing again on the bad news, the reality of sin. But you know what, church? The gospel is good news. It's literally euangelion. That's literally what it means in the Greek. It means good news. And it can't be good news without knowing what the bad news is. That's the point. That's why it's good news. That's why Isaiah spent most of chapter 59 talking about the effects of our separation from God and the consequences of sin. That's why Paul in that passage that I read in Romans 3 tells us so cheerily that no one is righteous. There's no one who seeks God. There's no no fear of God before their eyes, but that's not where the story ends. Romans 3, if you're there, look at verse 21. Again, this moment where God breaks through. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the old covenant. 
although the law and the, watch this, the prophets bear witness to it. Like guys like Isaiah bearing witness to the gospel. And he comes right out and says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Romans is so rich in that it pulls together these prophecies and pulls together everything and leaves no doubt. Well, the Bible's not really clear. It doesn't tell us about Jesus being the Messiah. It doesn't tell us. Nonsense when you read stuff like this. Romans 3 could not be any more clear. The Messiah is Jesus, the one that Isaiah was talking about, pointing our need for a savior to the one who will come and that God will provide. There was no one to intercede, and so God's hand himself brought salvation. And what Isaiah, what Isaiah described in Israel in the 8th century, and now we know in 2021 America, evil abounds, truth and justice are gone, and we still need a savior. And God has provided one. We can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that is only by faith. And that is the message. Again, the ultimate message of Advent is the gospel. And if you do not understand the gospel, if you're trying to get your arms around the gospel, if you think you sort of understand the gospel, please talk to me. It is my favorite thing to talk about, as you can probably imagine. What better time to come to faith and an understanding of the gospel than the season of Christmas and the season of Advent. And so this Advent church, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, the incarnation, God with us, remember, church, why he came, why he was sent. He was sent to be our Savior, and we desperately need one. Father, we thank you for this word. Much of it was hard to focus on. And I'm sure much of it brought some discouragement as we were reading and, and seeing these things, not only in our own hearts of the, the truth of sin, but also what we see in our society, where we do have men who are plowing through parades full of people in evil. And we see people being ruthlessly attacked and other things and violence, and we see oppression and we see racism and we see sexual assault and all of these things that we see the consequences of sin and we walk through it lord even in that as much as that discourages us and as we're tempted to look at the world around us lord fix our eyes on the solution the savior jesus the one that we could not do bring be ourselves the one that your hand has provided. And as this world may be dark, we pray that we would shine ever more brightly and point to the reason that we celebrate this Advent in the coming of the Savior. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.